0: Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 28.
1: We're now two full weeks into the new academic year. I hope any new intern listeners out there are starting to get the hang of things in their first month of residency.
0: It's called a learning curve, not a learning vertical line. Take things slowly and enjoy the roller coaster of intern year. Remember that we're continuing the contest this week, so if you hear the trauma ringtone, email us or tweet to us at Roshcast to win a prize. Let's get started with a rapid review.
1: Ophthalmology in the ER can be particularly challenging. For our opening review, get your tono pens out and get ready for a closer look at the eyes. Oh my god. Can you describe the classic presentation for acute angle closure glaucoma? Acute angle
0: closure glaucoma classically presents with a painful monocular vision loss. The pupil would be fixed and mid-dilated with a hazy cornea and perilimbic injection.
1: How about optic neuritis?
0: Optic neuritis is characterized by central vision loss with preserved peripheral vision. Patients may also have pain with eye movement and reduced color vision.
1: And lastly, what about the classic presentation for a retinal detachment?
0: Retinal detachment is associated with painless monocular vision loss with floaters and flashing lights. The retina can appear dull and gray. Call ophthalmology immediately for any suspected retinal detachment.
1: With that, let's get started with the new material.
0: A 27 year old woman presents with vaginal bleeding. Her last menstrual period was eight weeks ago. On physical exam, there's a small amount of blood in the vaginal vault with an open internal cervical os. Bedside ultrasound reveals an intrauterine pregnancy with a fetal pull but no heartbeat. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A incomplete miscarriage, B inevitable miscarriage, C missed abortion, or D threatened miscarriage?
1: So here we have an open os, vaginal bleeding, and likely intrauterine fetal demise. This has to be an inevitable miscarriage or choice B. Exactly. Since this question is basically asking for a
0: definition, let's go ahead and define the different terms. Remember that although the management is the same for many of them, it's important to know the terms to communicate effectively with both your consultants and your patients.
1: Choice A, an incomplete miscarriage, that typically presents with abdominal pain or bleeding within the first 20 weeks of gestation, The os will be open, with some products of conception visible either in the os or in the vaginal canal. Choice B, an inevitable miscarriage, which this patient is having, that presents similarly. However, the os will be open, but the patient will not have passed any products of conception. On pelvic exam, the products of conception may be felt or visualized through the internal os. In contrast, choice C, a missed abortion, that's a very broad term to describe
0: any case in which there are products of conception in the uterus and the os is still closed. Common clinical scenarios include failure of the uterus to grow, an anembryotic gestation where the fetus doesn't develop, and fetal death when the fetal age and size should have a heartbeat present, but it's not there. Lastly, choice D, a threatened miscarriage, that's used to define any vaginal bleeding in pregnancy with a closed cervical os.
1: And remember that any of these scenarios can be extremely stressful to the patient and their family, so it's important to counsel them correctly. The approach I generally take is to empower the patient with a bit of information and remind them that this isn't their fault. I also like to remind patients that up to 25% of pregnant women experience bleeding during pregnancy. Right, and as long as there is still a
0: viable fetus in the uterus with a closed os, there is still a chance that the pregnancy will progress to a healthy child, as studies have shown that 35-50% to of women with a threatened miscarriage will ultimately lose the pregnancy, which means that 50-65% to will still have a normal pregnancy.
1: There is also one last pathology worth mentioning here, and that is a septic abortion. A septic abortion is, not surprisingly, an infection of the uterus during a miscarriage. The patient will often be quite sick, and usually staph aureus is the culprit. On exam, patients will have an open os with purulent discharge. The uterus will be diffusely tender, and patients may have some or all of the products of conception still in the uterus. In treatment here would be aggressive resuscitation with broad-spectrum
0: antibiotics, fluids, and a STAT OBGYN consult. These patients are extremely sick. I've only seen it once, and it's something I'll never forget.
1: Let's move on to the next question. How does the current Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, most commonly referred to as DSM-5, code personality and developmental disorders? Is it A, Axis 1, B, Axis 2, C, Section 1, or D, Section 2? I seem to remember that the old criteria had it as Axis 2, but I'm pretty sure that changed in DSM-5. You're right. So first, the answer here is choice D, Section 2. What this question is getting at is that in DSM-5, the access system was removed. Now, the DSM is broken out into sections. And those sections would be? There are three sections. Section 1 includes an introduction and instructions on how to use the new version. Section 2 covers the diagnostic categories. And Section 3 includes conditions that need additional research, a glossary of terms, and other important information.
0: So more or less, it's a complete revamping of the entire
1: DSM. It is indeed. The American Psychological Association did away with a multi-axial system as it was initially introduced to ensure that certain disorders that received inadequate clinical and research focus were given more attention. This problem no longer exists, and as such, the APA removed this in its entirety from DSM-5. Definitely not something we deal with every day, but it's a pretty big change. Yeah, and don't feel too bad if you got this one wrong. Most of the current Rosh Review users missed this one in the question bank. It's a big change and hopefully one you'll remember after this episode.
0: Alright, you're up for the next one. A 35-year-old woman with a known history of a seizure disorder is actively seizing in the ED. Which of the following is the first-line medication and route to treat her seizure? Is it A, intramuscular fosphenytoin, B, IV midazolam, C, oral lorazepam, or D, rectal diazepam?
1: A lot of great learning points to discuss with this question. But first, the answer here is definitely choice B, IV midazolam. That's right. Remember that in
0: any actively seizing patient, the first priority is the airway. If the patient is having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, they have a suppressed gag reflex and are more prone to aspiration. Remember to place them in the left lateral decubitus position to help prevent this from happening.
1: And after you have the patient in the correct position, you can start administering medication. Of course, in reality, these things are likely happening simultaneously. The first-line pharmacologic management for an actively seizing patient is a parenteral benzodiazepine, with the preferred route being IV, as it is the quickest onset of action. This is why choice B, IV midazolam, is the correct answer. And let's dive a bit deeper into the pharmacology. Benzodiazepines directly enhance
0: GABA-mediated neuronal inhibition and are therefore highly effective at terminating seizure activity. Benzos have been shown to be more effective than phenytoin at terminating status epilepticus, and they're equally as effective as parenteral fetal barbitol. They also don't have as high a risk of hypoventilation and hypotension as phenobarbital, although hypoventilation and hypotension do occur with benzodiazepines as well.
1: Although this question only had a single parenteral benzo option, if someone is in status, which is defined as continuous seizure activity for greater than 5 minutes, or 2 or more seizures without full recovery, you have a few different options. First-line benzos include lorazepam, 2-4 to mg IV, diazepam, 5-10 to mg IV, or midazolam, 2-4 to mg IV. If the patient has no IV access, midazolam 10 mg IM would be your go-to agent. And for second-line agents, you also have a couple choices. You can
0: use phenytoin or phosphenytoin at 20 mg per kilogram IV, valproic acid 20 mg per kilogram IV, phenobarbital 20 mg per kilogram IV at no faster than 50 mg per minute, or levetiracetam 2 to 4 grams over 15
1: minutes. And if all else fails, you can use a drip, either pentobarbital with a bolus of 5 to 15 milligrams per kilogram IV, followed by an infusion of 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram per hour, or propofol with a 3 to 5 milligram per kilogram bolus, followed by an infusion at 1 to 15 milligrams per kilogram per hour. Of course, at this stage, you'll almost certainly require intubation for airway protection.
0: And while you're preparing your medications, don't forget to check a fingerstick blood glucose to rule out hypoglycemia. And although much more rare, consider pyridoxine for isoniazid toxicity in the right patient.
1: All great points. Speaking of airway protection, which of the following statements is true regarding airway management in children? Is it A, adults are more susceptible to airway obstruction than children? B, children have a lower basal oxygen consumption compared to adults, which results in relative protection from hypoxia? and decreased need for pre-oxygenation. C, the glottic opening in children is more anterior compared to that of adults. Or D, the vocal cords are the narrowest portion of the airway in children compared to the cricoid ring in adults. Thankfully
0: we touched on this one last week. The answer here is choice C, the glottic opening in children is more anterior compared to that of
1: adults. Yeah, we reviewed a few of the key anatomical differences between the pediatric and adult airways, and they're worth going through again for some spaced repetition. As compared to the adult airway, the pediatric airway has a proportionally smaller larynx. The larynx is also more anterior and cephalad. The narrowest portion is the cricoid cartilage. The epiglottis is longer and narrower, and the tongue is proportionally larger. The neck, trachea, and bronchus are shorter, making the risk of mainstem intubation much higher.
0: As we stressed in episode 27, those differences are definitely worth reviewing on your own, since managing the pediatric airway often occurs in a high-stress situation, and you want to be as mentally prepared as possible. With that said, let me get started with the next question. It's totally unrelated to the airway, and it's a derm question, with a great picture, so I'll do my best to describe it. An 11-month-old male is brought in by his mother for a fever, irritability, and a rash. She reports that other children at his daycare have similar symptoms. On exam, you see a diffuse area of erythema with flaccid, ill-defined bullae. The entire abdomen is tender and warm. Some more advanced bullae are thin and fragile. There are large areas of exfoliation. Which of the following is true regarding this condition? Is it A, intravenous steroid administration is the mainstay of therapy, B, it's less common in children over 6 years of age, C, Nikolsky's sign is negative, or D, the condition is uniformly fatal?
1: It sounds a lot like you're describing a staph-scalded skin syndrome, so the answer here would be choice B, it's less common in children over 6 years of age,
0: Exactly. Staph scalded skin syndrome most commonly affects children under 2 years of age and is rarely seen in those over 6. This is an exotoxin-mediated widespread erythrodermal condition caused by the staph aureus exfoliative toxin. Outbreaks are often linked to nurseries and daycares, just like we saw in this question.
1: Don't forget about the other symptoms, which you did briefly touch on, and by those I mean systemic symptoms that include fever, malaise, irritability, and pain. The lesions also typically appear in a distinct order. They start out as areas of erythema, then later develop into flaccid, ill-defined, thin, and fragile bullae.
0: And treatment is supportive and resembles that of a burn patient. These kids require aggressive wound care and IV fluids to prevent secondary infections, fluid loss, and dehydration. Patients should also be started on anti-staphylococcal antibiotics like nafcillin or oxacillin. Vancomycin and clindamycin may also be used in populations with a high prevalence of MRSA.
1: As for the other answers in this question, steroids should be avoided as this is an acute infection and you wouldn't want to further weaken the immune system. Nikolsky sign is actually positive in staph scalded skin syndrome, not negative. And lastly, staph scalded skin syndrome is definitely not fatal. In fact, the prognosis is actually quite excellent when treated with appropriate antibiotics and supportive care.
0: And one last final point before we move on to the last question of the day. Adults certainly can develop this condition, but it's less common as they've developed anti-staphylococcal antibodies and have better renal clearance of the exfoliative toxin.
1: Alright, let's get to the last question, some bread and butter cardiology. A patient with palpitations presents to the ED. Her rhythm strip shows a polymorphic ventricular tachycardia with fluctuating amplitude of the URS complexes which appear to twist around the isoelectric line. The EKG is also up on the blog for those listening with readily available internet access. Which of the following is the most appropriate initial management? Is it A. Amiodarone, B. Cardioversion, C. Magnesium sulfate, or D. Transvenous pacing at 60 to 80 beats per minute?
0: This one is much easier if you're actually looking at the rhythm strip, but it's also important to recognize that description. The answer here is choice C, Mag sulfate, which is the treatment for torsades de Pond.
1: Torsade is actually associated with prolonged QT syndrome, hypokalemia, and hypomagnesemia. If untreated, it can deteriorate into ventricular fibrillation. In those that are stable, common symptoms are palpitations, dizziness, syncope, and even sudden death. As you correctly pointed out, the management is intravenous magnesium.
0: In addition to the common causes you just named, don't forget about the drugs that can prolong the QT interval as we see these drugs everywhere. Some common ones include methadone, erythromycin, Phenothiazines, droperidol, cyclic antidepressants, and the class 1A and 1C
1: antidysrhythmics. And let me quickly run through the other answer choices here as well. Choice A, amiodarone, that prolongs the QT interval and is therefore contraindicated. Choice B, cardioversion, that's the last resort treatment as most cases are self limiting and improve with magnesium. Choice D, a transvenous pacer, those used to treat radius arrhythmias. In cases of torsad, it can be used to overdrive paste the ventricles, but this is a time-consuming process and should only be done after a trial of magnesium has failed. Lots of good
0: stuff to go over this week, so let's finish out with a rapid review. An incomplete abortion occurs before 20 weeks when the os is open and the products of conception are visible in the vaginal vault or in the os.
1: An inevitable miscarriage presents with an open os without passage of any of the products of conception.
0: A missed abortion is a broader term that describes several conditions in which the fetus is no longer viable but remains intrauterine with a closed OS.
1: A threatened abortion is defined as any vaginal bleeding during pregnancy with a confirmed intrauterine pregnancy and a closed OS.
0: DSM-5 is organized by sections. The multi-axial system of DSM-4 is gone. Section 2 covers diagnostic categories and Section 3 covers conditions that need additional research.
1: In an actively seizing patient, the first priority is always airway protection. Roll the patient onto the left lateral decubitus position to prevent aspiration. The first-line
0: pharmacologic management for a patient in status epilepticus is parenteral benzodiazepines. Midazolam has the fastest onset.
1: Second-line agents for status epilepticus include phenytoin, phosphenytoin, valproic acid, phenobarbital, and levetiracetam.
0: Don't forget to check a finger stick and consider INH toxicity in those in status epilepticus in the right clinical scenario.
1: The glottic opening in children is more anterior when compared
0: to that of adults. The narrowest portion of the pediatric airway is the cricoid cartilage.
1: As compared to the adult airway, in the pediatric airway, the tongue is proportionally larger and the epiglottis is longer and more narrow.
0: Staph skin syndrome most commonly affects those under 2 and is rarely seen in those over 6 years old.
1: Staph skin syndrome is treated with IV fluids, aggressive wound management, and an anti-staphylococcal antibiotic.
0: Torsade de Pond is associated with a prolonged QT interval, hypomagnesemia, and hypokalemia.
1: And Torsade is treated with IV magnesium. All right, so that's all for Roshcast, episode number 28. No trauma ringtone this week. Honestly, it'll probably come next week, so keep listening for the prize. Talk to you all then. We're out.